0: Hello, it's Thursday 2nd of February. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be rounding up a busy January by assessing the top 10 travel and talking points from the first month of 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show.
1: wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So January was a fascinating month for travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. China reopened its airport gates after three years, albeit gradually. The Lunar New Year kicked off the domestic and outbound travel calendar and tourism boards across the region, as we knew they would, set out their initial 2023 visitor forecasts.
0: Yes, so today we'll review January's top 10 travel talking points and discuss what they could mean for the 12 months ahead. The journey takes us to nine countries around the region, so let's dive in. And this first one is a pick of yours, isn't it, Gary? Seven ASEAN nations prepare for Chinese group tours.
1: Yep, so phase two of China's reopening begins next Monday, the 6th of February, and this is when Chinese group tour travel is permitted to, to recommence. It was suspended. All grouped out, outbound group tours from China were suspended on the 25th of January, back in 2020, just over three years ago. Um, but it, they are able to, uh, they're permitted, sales are permitted, and people are able to travel on group tours out of China uh, from next week to 20 countries on a, on a pilot basis. Uh, and as you said, Hannah, there, are seven of them are in Southeast Asia. Those are Thailand, Indonesia, Cambodia, Philippines. Malaysia, Singapore, and Laos, four more are in Asia Pacific, Maldives, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, and Fiji. And then the nine others are a mix uh, around the world, Middle East, Africa, one one or two in Europe, I think, and also South America. But also, I think one of the interesting things, Hannah, is, you know, we're ready for the group travel to come back. We're not really sure what will be the volume of group tours from China, uh, particularly to begin with, it may be a slow start. Um, but I think it's some of the exemptions that are most interesting and probably have caught your eye.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's, I think, more interesting to see who's not on the list. Um, right, so Vietnam isn't on the list. Um, Brunei, okay, it's pretty small. Maybe it's not a, a super hot uh, Chinese uh, outbound market anyhow. Myanmar, okay, sure, makes sense. You know, you've you've got the unrest there. Probably don't want your citizens getting caught up in that. But the majority of Europe, no. Like you say, Gary, Switzerland, yes. Hungary, yes. But the rest of Europe, France, UK, nope, they're not on the list. US, they're not on the list either. So this is really almost, uh, (laughs) it's almost back down to that, that vaccine diplomacy. This is the Chinese group tour diplomacy, isn't it?
1: It kind of is. And I think another one that's also stares us in the face of not being included, particularly as New Zealand is, is Australia. Australia isn't included on this initial list. Now, we don't know. um, This is at 20 countries on a pilot basis. We don't know when more countries will be added. And as you said there, Hannah, you know, if we go back to when Southeast Asia reopened, you know, a lot of countries had rules in terms of which countries were able to visit inbound. Uh, In some cases, they had uh, rules on, on outbound as well. China's possibly taking this to the extreme at the moment of course no uh, Japan no South Korea either that sort of sounds a little bit political but my feeling is that this will will phase in over the next two or three months and by the second half of the year you know that that 20 that number of 20 countries will will be multiplied I, I would imagine by by several fold
0: Yeah I mean like you say that they're, they're following the kind of Singapore VTL almost kind of playbook right and if you remember at the end of twenty twenty one, Singapore was still very much restricted, uh, which countries travellers could travel to, um, both for outbound and for inbound. So, yeah, it's reasonable that they want to control it. Are some of them politically motivated? A bit of tit for tat um, on, you know, this rhetoric around being careful around Chinese group tours. Possibly, maybe Southeast Asia is is benefiting from that because they had such a kind of open policy around Chinese travellers, but they're also closer, they're, the flights are shorter. Um, and, you know, as, as you and, and Wolfgang were saying in, in the podcast a few weeks ago, of course, Europe has all of those problems with flights and not being able to fly over Russia anyhow. Um, so perhaps those numbers would be more limited. So these destinations probably make sense.
1: Yep, agree with all that, Hannah. So let's move on to number two, which takes us to Vietnam. This is one of your selections, Hannah, tell us, tell us more.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, Lunar New Year means Tet in Vietnam, and it's you know peak time for traveling, um, particularly domestically. Um, and Ho Chi Minh City's uh, Tan Son Nat International Airport on the twenty seventh of January, so that was the Friday um, after Lunar New Year, had its highest single day passenger record ever over Tet. They had nine hundred and sixteen flights, almost one hundred and fifty thousand passengers. You know. Traffic is high in Vietnam and, you know, it's it's a market that we keep saying we need to talk more about on the podcast because we haven't spoken about it that much recently. But, you know, the, the domestic market is very strong. Yes, you know, we, we've discussed internally, we've discussed internationally inbound to Vietnam has been very low, has been very disappointing in 2022. But the domestic market is still, is still going very strong.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I was, I was thinking about this before we came on air, Hannah. There's a couple of things that I was going to ask you about this. I mean, do you think that the strength of domestic travel as we move into 2023, is that, does that symbolize anything? Does that mean that there's a, still a reticence to travel internationally? Does it just mean there are more options to travel domestically? People have got a bit more used to it. What do you think is behind it?
0: I mean, I wonder if it's still a lot towards that you know, the fact that this year is probably the first normal um, Tet celebration that they've probably had since the pandemic hit. So I think it's a lot like here in Malaysia. I think, again, we've seen really strong domestic travel movements and people are just wanting to celebrate that big festival with with their loved ones, you know, and and really have a good celebration um, rather than necessarily travel overseas. And again, in traveling overseas is limited by those expensive flights and, and by seat capacity. Um, so when you compare that to traveling domestically, yes, perhaps airfares might still be a little bit raised because there's very high demand, but it's not going to cost as much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. I hadn't really thought of that. I think also one of the interesting issues about Vietnam is, particularly as we go through this year, as inbound, domestic and outbound probably start to ramp up on a, on a much, much higher higher level. Um, is airport capacity. I think there's going to be huge problems towards the end of the year. They are, aren't they, building new airports, new terminals. But at the moment, uh, they could max out this year. And, you know, that could uh, could cause delays and, you know, long uh, long queues and stuff at airports.
0: Absolutely. I mean, they've been talking about, I think there are, there are some pillars that are along uh, some land at the Ho Chi Minh uh, City Airport that need to be removed for them to be able to extend railway, um, extend the runways and, and so on. And, there keeps being pressure from up high to start this work. And I think there's been delays and delays. Of course, there's the new uh, Long Tan International Airport that's meant to open later in the decade. I think that still hasn't really um, picked up speed yet in terms of construction. So you're right, Gary, they really are at the maximum limit. So that's going to be what's going to hold them back.
1: Yeah. And as you say, Hannah, we'll be talking more about Vietnam in the coming weeks. So let's move. Let's stay in mainland Southeast Asia and move on to Laos, Hannah. This is, uh, I guess we would be talking about this inevitably this year. This is the Laos-China Railway. Tell us a bit more.
0: Yeah, so this is an interesting article that came out last week. Now, of course, Laos and China have opened um, their land borders with one another. Um, But the Laos-China Railway, uh, which links the two countries by rail, um, has not yet opened for that kind of cross-border travel. Um, And... This seems to be the reason why. So the Minister of Public Works and Transport was warning um, in the mainstream media last week that passengers who travelled between Laos and China on that railway could see up to four hours of waiting time passing through the two immigration checkpoints en route. Um, So it seems like, (laughs) obviously, they've built this railway, but haven't quite thought through what would happen with those passengers and how can you make it actually makes sense. Um, So they've said that the Laos government is working together with China to find a way to reduce the time needed. Maybe they could try and use some kind of single point for entry and exit procedures, I guess, in a similar way to something like the Eurostar uses. But for me, it's a little bit of a a surprise. I think when I was reading that thinking, oh, they didn't quite plan that far ahead then. Um, You'd think that this would be something as they were planning and building it and building up to it. Even though the borders hadn't opened yet, you would you would hope that there was still some kind of forward planning as to what the procedures would be for this railway. But uh, that perhaps hasn't happened.
1: Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? But I guess there's a corollary to that. News coming out, I think, today or yesterday, um, that they're building a railway station on the Laos-Thailand border, which will connect uh, Thailand with, with Laos. So uh, you know, in theory, China, Laos, Thailand will ultimately, or, or very, very soon, be connected Um, With rail services, as we know, Thailand is also building a high-speed railway, and that will connect up probably later in this decade. But in the meantime, there is a railway that runs from Thailand to the the Laos border, Um, and they've now built a a station on the border which can facilitate cross-border movements there. So, you know, the the, the railway infrastructure of Southeast Asia is on the move, isn't it? And we've got more projects coming this year, something we'll talk about definitely this year, because, uh, you know, our, our skies are getting very, very crowded. And then there could very well be stronger demand for overland travel for environmental reasons. But also, I I guess, you know, if you're going to have long waits or long delays at airports for speed, you know, city to city uh, railways in in Asia tend to be quite quick, quite punctual. Um, And we're we're probably going to see more delays in in air transport as demand picks up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's move south now, um, to Singapore. And this is a pick from you, Gary, wasn't it? This was about Singapore's average hotel room rates in December.
1: Yeah, so the this is an interesting story, because it's one of those where you dig a little bit deeper from the headline, you find some interesting things. But as the headline states, is that in December, uh, the Singapore Tourism Board announced that Uh, A new 14 year high of average room rate up 27.7% from the year before, no great surprise. But 285 Singapore dollars, 84 cents uh, was the average room rate in December, which now, but that's pretty high when you consider that that's the average rate if you're traveling to Singapore in December. Now, Singapore in December isn't a mice month, you know, it tends to be more of a leisure month. Um, But the interesting thing when you dig a little bit deeper, um, is that across the year we know that Singapore um you know its 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 number of visitors across the year was, was significantly lower than it was in twenty nineteen and its revenues, um its overall room revenues were down of course than they were um in, in twenty nineteen. Total room revenue, this is a good stat, Hannah, in twenty twenty-two was 3.24 billion Singapore dollars. That's more than the combined years of 2020 and 2021. So that shows you just how bad it got and then how, how much it's improving, I suppose. But there are also signs that, although people are, are paying higher rates at specific times, like Christmas, like the, the holiday periods, throughout the year, um, average occupancies uh, aren't as high as you would expect and nor are average rates And Cushman and Wakeford, who actually did this research, said that one of the things that they're starting to notice is what they call price resistance in the market. Uh, And that's something they're going to be watching to to moderate or or hopefully stabilize through 2023. I think that just shows you that Singapore's room rates are really, really high, given the volume of travels that are going into the country. And this, I think, shows that the country really has moved forward with its quality tourism strategy of, of keeping rates high and making sure that they increase revenues, even if they're not increasing the, the total number of visitors coming into the country.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, like you say, nowadays, if you really wanted that that week long stay, let's say in Singapore, you are going to have to look at quality tourists um, who are going to be able to afford it with with hotel room rates that high. And there was an interesting stat about Marina Bay Sands, obviously very high end, you know, flagship property in Singapore. Their average hotel occupancy in Q four last year was ninety eight point three percent, which I just find staggering. Um that it, it reached such a such a high, ninety eight point three percent. Um and like you say, I think that says a lot about that. High quality travellers uh demand that is certainly there for Singapore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, it's something definitely to watch. And as, as you said, Hannah, you know, this year we have a full year of travel and tourism as opposed to a sort of condensed year last year. And we'll see what that does to, to, to rates and to demand and supply of, of hotels.
0: So next one um, is going back up to Thailand. And it's another pick from you, Gary, isn't it? About an aviation city for tourists.
1: Yeah, an aviation city, which basically means an enlarged airport. I suppose um, the the number three airport in Thailand, after Suvarnabhumi and uh, Don Muang is Utapao, uh, which is in the eastern part. Tends to sort of service areas like Rayong and Pattaya. Now, there's been talk about they were going to upgrade this airport for many, many years, and, and really, really expand its capacity. It, it's, I think it's jointly uh, owned or jointly used by the military and as a civil airport. It was built during the Vietnam War era. Thailand, again, is looking to, as you said, I think last week, Hannah, it's got these very high forecasts for visitor arrivals over the coming years. And it's going to need more airport capacity in a similar way as we were talking about with Vietnam. It's not just about inbound and outbound. There's probably going to be stronger domestic travel flows as well. Um, so it sees as having this third airport around about the size of its two main airports uh, is very important another aspect of this is job creation it could create around sixteen thousand jobs but i think this is also part of something that we talked about last year is that now that the pandemic is over we are going to see much more investment in transport infrastructure across the region now we're seeing new airports we talked about in vietnam malaysia is also talking about expanding uh, KLAA into a sort of aerotropolis or an aviation city Singapore's building a huge new terminal Cambodia. Uh, we' are seeing airport construction as well. This is something that's just going to roll on but but it's you know it's it has a number of purposes economic purposes, creating jobs uh, creating capacity, and also hopefully um, supporting the growth of travel and tourism
0: yeah, I don't think I can add on anything more to that so yes, um moving on to my next pick then um Going down to Indonesia, this is about tourism villages. And I swear every week that I write up stories and developments for my weekly report, there has to be at least one tourism village story, (laughs) else it's not an Indonesian week, right? There has to be something in there. Um, So last week was the tourism minister really, again, just urging regions to pay more attention to tourism village development. And he called it a pandemic winner. Um, You know, he'd said that during the pandemic, number of visits to tourism villages had grown by 30 to 50 percent, number of tourists increasing, including local tourists as well. And so they they really see tourism villages as being this key structure to Indonesian tourism that I think allows it to to boost local development as well, to to try to boost those livelihoods of of local people. Um, as well as, you know, the, the major cities, the major um, tourist areas. Um, so, I mean, as, as we've said before, I think the the principle of tourism villages is great. There are a lot of them. I've, I've lost the number, but there are, I think, a few thousand tourism villages that are designated as such in Indonesia. I think they're all at slightly different stages of development. I think it's essentially a term that is touted around a lot. Tourism villages. I think there still needs to be some some really firm direction from the government what that means and ensuring that they don't just become commodified. Um, you know that they they can keep that authenticity with them.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. He's, I mean, Santiago Uno is by far and away the most energetic tourism minister in the region, isn't it? He, he's everywhere. You see him all the time, and he's coming out with with new ideas all the time, with new projects. I think it's interesting this year, because as as we're moving into 2023, you know, this is a year, it's a vital year for travel and tourism across Southeast Asia to get that recovery really building. Um, And Indonesia, of course, this year is the chair of ASEAN. So I think we're going to see them really pushing development in these kind of projects um, for domestic tourism as well as international tourism. So I think we're going to be hearing quite a lot from Indonesia this year. As you say, Hannah, you know, he's been talking about... um, tourism villages for quite a long time. It's now actually really the time this year to see how they will deliver. And as you say, whether that authenticity actually comes through, something to definitely watch, because it's going to be a big story through this year.
0: And of course, you know, with the presidential elections coming up in Indonesia, Sandiaga Una is kind of believed by many to be gunning for some of the top spots. And so the pressure is really going to be on him to have to deliver on, on these tourism villages. And if that's his his flagship um, strategy for economic development and to drive that and to drive tourism, then he'd better see results.
1: Yeah, good point. So from one giant archipelago nation to another, Hannah, let's move across to the Philippines. Now, this isn't a particularly huge story, but it's something that I picked up because I didn't realize that this wasn't actually a part of their tourism offerings. The president this week has approved uh, a VAT, value-added tax refund program for foreign tourists, from twenty twenty four, so it won't happen this year. It'll come into force next year. Philippines collects twelve percent VAT on goods consumed within the country, um, but it doesn't actually enable foreign tourists to reclaim that, as you get in most countries around the world. I didn't realize that they don't do that. Um, so they're going to introduce that next year. I mean, that's got to be a positive move, hasn't it? Anna?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, and like you say, I hadn't really realized that either. But if you look at a country like the UK. And the UK, um, of course, previously had these VAT refunds and then uh, with uh, Brexit and everything else, they then rescinded that and then they did a U-turn and then they did back. But the the tourism industry in the UK is is really critical of this move. You know, they're, they're really saying that VAT refunds are part of the reason why people are visiting the UK, why foreign tourists are coming in, why they're shopping. Um, so, you know, they, they really see this revenue as as being central and this being a really good promotional tool to attract tourists so you know I think Philippines are on the right track with this.
1: I can concur about the UK's policy it's absolutely crazy and having just come back from Paris uh, this week and seen the queues at the VAT refund uh, kiosks at the airport particularly from Asian tourists who bought their, their LV bags or their Gucci or their Dior um, you know, it's it's crazy that the UK doesn't offer that. Uh, the Philippines is is moving into line in 2024. So, yeah, you, you'd hope that they will reap some benefit from that.
0: So next pick is another one from you, Gary. And I hadn't really seen this one, actually. Um, so tell us more. It's about Malaysia, uh, prime ministers being sued and the high-speed rail project.
1: Yeah, this is a complicated story. I'll try and keep it as brief as I can, Hannah. But it's it's the fallout from the cancelled high-speed railway link between Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur and Singapore, which was supposed to, you know, we've been reading about this for years and years, over the last decade, I think, but it was cancelled, officially cancelled in 2021 by Malaysia. Uh, They backtracked on the agreement and they had to pay substantial uh, damages to the Singaporean government for doing so. The reasons for doing so, they were various. It was a very, very difficult political time here in, in Malaysia when that happened. The high-speed railway itself would have been 350 kilometers between the two cities, Singapore and Kuala Lumpur, and it would reduce the, the train time to about 90 minutes, I think. There were worries that it would uh, challenge the airlines uh, because that route is one of the busiest international routes in the world, um, not, just, not just in the region. But anyway, what's happened now is that an individual Malaysian, a private citizen, has filed a lawsuit against two former Malaysian prime ministers, Mahathir Mohammed and Mohidin Yassin, for what he calls alleged abuse of public office and negligence over the cancellation of this project, he said it was illegal; it should be nulled and void, and both prime ministers should be put, forced to pay reparations to every single Malaysian for doing so. Wow, what a what a what a huge case! It's pretty unusual that this kind of thing would happen. The case will be heard; I think it's today, um, so we will find out quite quickly. Um, but it's it's we're seeing in Malaysia at the moment the outbreak come of quite a lot of difficult uh, cases uh, and some alleged corruption uh, in the news at the moment and this is part of that so there's a lot of cleanup to do for our new prime minister who's only been in place for a couple of months and these things are really getting in the way of of Malaysia actually moving forward and reinvesting in the country Um, and it's something that has been dragging on for a long time but it just doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon.
0: No um, but yeah fascinating that there's private private citizens decided to to sue those those past two prime ministers but yeah I mean it was a project that people were really excited about and then it was cancelled and all of this money had to be paid to Singapore like you say and yeah I I think I think people have got mixed feelings about it here in Malaysia but you know for me I feel like it was a bit of a missed opportunity I think to develop this high-speed rail but hey never say never.
1: I agree. I think especially as, you know, the, the, the routes are going to be built, you know, beyond the Malay Peninsula through Thailand, connecting with Laos and China, you know, the ultimate goal was to connect Kunming, southeastern China, with Singapore. That's been the long term goal to do that. Uh, and obviously the, the KL Singapore is the last piece of that jigsaw. Um, but, you know, the, the political shenanigans that went on to, to prevent that happening. Um, means that, again, the country is is, is delayed in its investment, which is, as you said, there are mixed messages and mixed uh, emotions about it here. But overall, as part of a a regional infrastructure project, it seems that it's a big miss.
0: Yeah, it would have made sense. Leaving that aside, I'm moving to Cambodia now. That uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen um, announced that Cambodia has spent over $100 million to host the 2023 Sea Games and the ASEAN Parry Games. Um, so they've they spent that over about three years. They estimate about, spent around $40 million um, each year for the last three years. And they've just launched their 100-day countdown. They're clearly seeing this as it's going to be an event that's going to put Cambodia on the map, that's going to boost tourism, that's going to boost the economy. Um, and I just thought it was interesting that, that they have put all of this money into, um, promoting these, these games. And, you know, it's this, this trend, isn't it? That we've, that we're seeing, you know, worldwide with in the past, lots of countries putting in lots of money to host games like the Olympics and so on. And does that legacy then continue? Is it worthwhile ultimately to have done that the jury is kind of out
1: yeah it's a big topic i agree with you hannah it's it's one of those issues and particularly over the past two years you know, we've seen uh two olympic games in the asia pacific region the the beijing winter olympics and the tokyo summer olympics where they took place during the pandemic so all that investment amounted to very to, to very little i um, because there were no tourists there were no spectators and um, for those two countries you know they'll be counting the cost of that cambodia is promoting this as you know the first games after the pandemic or after the the lockdown period, after travellers recovered in the pandemic era, so the optimism I can see is there. It's building new infrastructure around the games itself. That's important for Cambodia. Um, but whether it will actually attract the numbers that it's talking about, I guess remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, the cynic in me says, why not take that one hundred million dollars and use it instead to uh, to fund a tourism campaign and let people know <laughs> about the success that Cambodia has had during the pandemic. I'm not in charge, so <laughs> that's why we're not politicians. <laughs> exactly. Um, and moving on then, our last our last country uh that we're covering, number nine, um, Myanmar. Um, so Myanmar is, is kind of a a three-story in one, if you like, a kind of a mini roundup, I suppose, of what's going on. So obviously today is the second of February. Two years ago on the 1st of February, 2021 was when the junta had their military coup. And so Myanmar has been essentially under military rule um, for the last couple of years. Very, very limited freedoms um, for the people there. Obviously, a very tough situation for everybody there. Now, a couple of extra developments that have happened just in the last week or so is on the one hand, they have hosted a three-day travel fair in Yangon um, that was hosted by um, one of the, the tour operator associations there. But at the, by the same token, the junta have now stopped processing new passport applications. Um, so essentially limiting that outbound travel. And I presume, uh, I think that the, the, the three-day travel fair was, would have also been promoting outbound travel. As always, it, it's incredibly complicated in Myanmar but it's not going to be easily resolved as we keep saying and there seems to be no end in sight for it really.
1: No difficult times I agree I think it's today or yesterday they the military junta has decided to extend the state of emergency for another six months as well um, so that puts another issue around people traveling to the country uh, uncertainty and, and all of that as well yeah difficult times and it's, uh, it's two years now I mean the country's been through been through so much ASEAN is talking under is under the leadership of of Indonesia of being a little bit stronger and trying to find a way to to resolve this a little bit more um with a bit more pressure but you know ASEAN is very split on this issue and where that will go you know it's it's hard to say i think
0: yes so on that slightly gloomy note, we probably should have chosen a different story to uh, to finish with. Um, that brings us to a close of the show for the week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And as always, don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show.
1: Yeah. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform.
0: So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond.